0: Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. Today's interview is with Chris Barton. Chris is the co-founder of Shazam, a mobile music recognition service which started out as an idea that Chris had in 1999. Today, Shazam has over 100 million active users each month. In 2004, Chris joined Google, and currently he's working at Dropbox, where he's responsible for business development for mobile operators. He also continues to serve on the Shazam Entertainment Board. So what are you waiting for? Head over to sasclub.io slash newsletter and join over 4,000 other SaaS founders and entrepreneurs who are already using these insights to grow their businesses. Subscribe to the SaaS Club newsletter today and get the support you need to keep moving forward on your SaaS journey. Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Now, I gave the audience a brief overview uh, of the product or business, but tell us a little bit more about yourself personally who is Chris when he's not working
1: yeah uh, see uh, when I'm not working um uh, this, gosh I guess I, I guess I'm a guy who is uh, loves the outdoors loves adventure um, loves surfing I grew up in San Diego so surfing was a big part of my life um, and uh, loves travel so um, yeah I'm, I'm a pretty social person I love to have a good time I, I always like to say I work hard and I'm driven by laziness in the sense that I <laughs> I'd love, uh, love to have some more free time.
0: Awesome. Now, we like to kick things off with a success quote to better understand what drives and motivates our guests. What is one of your favorite quotes?
1: Yeah, there's this one quote that I came across that uh, really resonated with me uh, because it reminded me so much of the story of Shazam. Um, and that's, the, that's because everything we were doing Shazam, but particularly uh, the idea of uh, being able to identify music in this noisy environment um, and then turn it into a product that people would use all the time. And this, this is the quote that I, that I really love. It's by, from someone named Walter Baggett. And, um, and the quote says, the greatest pleasure in life is doing what people say you cannot do.
0: And I think as we get into the story, um, I think that for people who aren't familiar with the Shazam story, I think that quote will make a a lot more sense. Um, as, as we sort of look at the business as it is today, can you talk a little bit about who the the target customers are and, and what are the pain points that Shazam is trying to solve today?
1: Sure. Um, well, I, I like to think that the target customers is everyone on earth. Um, yeah, or at least certainly everyone that enjoys music, which is, I, I believe, is a, a, the vast majority of people. Um, and uh, all those people are more and more moving to smartphones, as we know. Um, and so, you know, basically, I think Shazam ideally sort of solves a problem for all those people, which is really finding a way to connect with music that they pass by in their sort of in their daily lives uh, and then be able to bring it into their life uh, and then interact with it.
0: So let's go back to 1999. Um, h- how did you come up with the idea for Shazam?
1: Yeah, uh, so my uh, I think the the concept of wanting to know the name of a song when you hear it, it was sort of a, was really an obvious one. It certainly was not non-obvious. And, and that's one that probably in the past, many people would have thought about. And in fact, there were even companies that were sort of attempting various solutions to solve that problem. Um, But all the companies that were, you know, approaching it, were approaching it in a way that sort of was technically feasible, which was um, to focus in on radio play because radio play sort of was a known quantity. um, And so you could, there are ways of finding out what's which songs were playing on radio stations in real time. And the number of companies uh, used various methods to kind of track, monitor, report radio play in real time and therefore enable users, uh, people, to, to, uh, to know what song is playing. Um, but the real, I think the real um, breakthrough in, in, with Shazam is I was sort of brainstorming ideas for businesses, and I was really interested in this particular problem of knowing what's playing. Um, and I also started off by thinking about the radio-focused uh, solution, because that seems like the easiest one to conquer. And then I kind of thought, well, if you did, if you did solve it for radio play, you know, what, it seems, what, what would be something that someone could do that would sort of leapfrog you? Um, and then I, I thought to myself, wow, what if it, what if you could just solve it, you know, with, and you didn't need to know what was playing on the radio because you could just solve it using the actual sound that you hear. Um, wouldn't that be amazing? Cause you wouldn't need to know the name of the radio station and not only that, but you wouldn't be limited to, to what you're hearing on radio stations. You, you would be able to use it anywhere because radio is not the only place we hear music. It's a significant source, but we also hear music in cafes, bars, clubs, shops, restaurants, theaters, laundromats, you name it. Um, and, uh, so, so that was the, that was the kind of breakthrough was thinking what, what, what would be a leapfrog, um, over kind of just a radio only solution. And it led me to think, wow, it'd be something that was based on just the actual sound coming to your ears. What if we could focus on identifying that right over a mobile phone?
0: This wasn't an area that you had any, any expertise in at the time, right?
1: it was completely new to me yeah i had no expertise whatsoever so i kind of started from scratch with my co-founders to to uh identify you know how we would go about doing this
0: so how did you know that this was the right idea because i understand you know you were a guy who was always coming up with lots of ideas
1: so how did you know this was yeah, the one um so yeah i definitely um, was really into brainstorming ideas. I really always enjoyed that, um, but I think that really it came from the fact that this is one that I felt passionate about, and it really resonated with me. Some of the other ideas um, I would often think about try to th- think of ideas that were solving real problems, um, but were also um, were also viable businesses. Um, but I found that for many of the other ideas, I just when I really thought about it, I just couldn't get that excited about them. Um, for example, there was one I was thinking about that was you know, selling contact lenses and contact solutions on the web, which seemed like a real opportunity back in that at the time. And actually there, and was some companies actually turned that into quite a big viable business, but I just couldn't get excited about it day to day. Uh, Whereas Shazam was something that I was just really felt passionate as something that was going to really have a big impact on, on delighting users around the world.
0: What advice would you give to somebody who, who maybe is in that stage right now where, you know, they have a ton of different ideas um, different levels of excitement about them, um, or maybe they're passionate about something that at this point doesn't seem like a, a really big business opportunity. What you know? What What's a good way for them to sort of think about picking that idea?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that um, as an entrepreneur, uh, you benefit greatly by trying to pick. Uh, ideas that could become big businesses um, and you know that's something that certainly investors often look at when they're looking at whether to fund an entrepreneur one of their key criteria is something that can be could has the has the chance to become a very big business um, and uh, as sometimes something that you know can seem very small initially uh, um, does have the opportunity to become a very big business um, but it's really understanding how to how to sort of assess that kind of how to try to project forward and say, you know, how big is the market for this? How big is, how many people want this type of service? You know, how much money is being spent on similar types of things today? Um, and really sizing the opportunity. Um, and I think that's, that's uh, that kind of exercise is, is one that's well worthwhile as an entrepreneur kind of thinks through the, the different ideas that they might pursue.
0: Okay. So you, you had this idea, you've got, um, your two co-founders, um, on board and they're excited about this, this opportunity as well, but you were still missing one person, somebody who actually had the expertise to be able to, um, you know, build this, this technology. Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit about how you went about trying to find that person?
1: Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, we, I mean, we wanted to build this technology, Um, And as we started to explore experts um, in the area that was relevant, which was essentially uh, audio signal processing, um, was the area that we identified would be kind of the expertise um, needed to create a technology that could identify music. Um, But as we explored that, uh, we we soon learned that this technology was not something you just simply built. It was actually something that needed to be invented. And the reason for that is because everyone who uh, was an expert in this area Um, told us that basically what we were trying to do was impossible. There was no known technology um, that would be able to identify music with noise. Um, You could do it without noise, um, or you could do it with a small set of songs, but to do it um, with noise over a mobile phone, was there was no known solution. Um, And uh, so we knew we had to invent the technology. So it was really a matter of finding not just um, someone who had the skill sets to build this, but someone who really was kind of theoretical and could sort of It'd be a kind of almost a mini Einstein for um, coming up with a completely new revolutionary method of pattern recognitions with a specific uh, uh, concept in mind of audio recognition in a noisy environment at scale. Um, and um, so we hunted for that person. The way we did it is we you know, went to some of the top institutions that had a PhD program focused on uh, signal processing, audio signal processing, and two of the leading institutions in the U.S., were Stanford and MIT. And we started networking our way through those, those departments, um, both uh, current PhD students and, um, prior graduates from the PhD programs, as well as the professors themselves. And, um, it was a, a kind of a, a, a very intensive, um, networking and hunting, uh, uh, session, um, trying to find that right person, um, to, uh, until we could, uh, find a, the perfect co-founder to uh, join us in, in, in creating this technology.
0: Now, I think that this is an interesting point. You, you went out looking for these people who were uh, experts in audio signal processing. You spoke to these PhDs. And pretty much at that point, everybody was telling you it's impossible. It can't be done. Why, what kept you going? Why did you believe that you could still do this?
1: Yeah. I I think that, um, I mean, you know, what what was really funny is that even when we found the person that did say he would join us to do it as well as the professor that, that helped us find that person, even he said that he still felt like it was impossible. Um, so, um, I think that, um, I was just convinced it was possible. Uh, and no matter what people told me, even though they had this deep expertise and I did not, um, I just felt like I felt like that, I, I, it it felt fundamentally possible to me um because i just felt like there's ultimately some meaningful data in in the bits of music that you can capture even in a noisy environment over a mobile phone and there's got to be some way to turn that into um a robust uh match um so i, I guess i think i just felt like in, in in my heart that this was it felt felt fundamentally possible um and it just really came from really an instinct um i mean i have parents who are scientists Uh, both PhDs in physics. And so I think I grew up in an environment um, of science and um, maybe that influenced me in some way. Uh, But um, I certainly wasn't, had no expertise in the field. Uh, But as as I said, it was just really a, just a raw instinct that this had to be feasible. And so I kind of refused to give up.
0: Okay. So you've, you persuaded to this person to come. So it was Avery Wang, right? Who joined you guys as the, as the fourth person on the team. Yep. How how did you um, fund this business? Uh,
1: yeah, so we, we originally raised uh, angel money, uh, angel fr- money fr- uh, funds from angel investors. Um, the first round was I think close to a million dollars, about a million dollars, um, and um, that, that's how that's how we first funded the company. So we just approached uh, kind of individuals that we thought would, would have an interest in investing in this type of startup, um, and uh, and and raise those funds to kind of fund that first. Kind of year, year and a half of uh, of kind of the incubation stage of of the company.
0: What did you have to show those investors at that time? Did did you have a working product?
1: No, all we had was a demo, really. Um, and this demo um, originally was uh, on a, just on a laptop computer, actually. Um, so what it what it showed is it showed um, we could play a sound that had had been submitted over collected over a mobile phone. Um, of a bit, bit of music, which we collected, as you might expect, but over mobile phones. Um, and it, it, you could hear, you could barely hear the music in, in these, these clips. So you could see how challenging the problem was going to be. And then we used our algorithm that we had invented. So we actually invented the algorithm prior to raising angel money. So um, I don't think anyone would have invested um, just based on the idea alone. So our first kind of nine months as a, as a company had zero funding and we for, focused on finding that co-founder and then inventing the technology. Um, and then once we had invented this technology, um, and patented it, we then, um, we then had, had this demo that we could show people that showed how it would, uh, basically take this sort of noisy sample class over a mobile phone and then correctly match it against uh, a database of music, which of course on a laptop demo was a pretty small database of music, probably 10,000 songs or something uh, much smaller than what Shazam has today.
0: Okay. So you've, you've persuaded uh, investors to get on board. You guys have got uh, a million dollars. How did you spend that money? What were the sort of the major areas of investment for you guys back then?
1: Yeah. So we raised seven and a half million dollars in our series A round. um, And we really needed a lot of capital to get this business to launch. Um, So back then when we were starting Shazam, which was uh, that round was closed in 2001 um, we, uh, we we had to build almost everything from scratch. So the, there were no digital music databases that you could just go and um, used as a starting point to create sort of f- fingerprints that we needed um, for identifying music. So we had to kind of help create those fingerprint databases from scratch, um, starting from CDs. Um, so that was a, a ma- massive undertaking. Um, we had to build, there was no kind of Amazon cloud um, servers that you could just sort of outsource to. Um, so we, uh, we had to build all, all of our own infrastructure from scratch, and we essentially built like a mini Google, center, sort of a Beowulf cluster of PCs, um, on which uh, the Ram, uh, in the RAM, we stored the fingerprints of all, the, all this music, um, and uh, built essentially a little mini search engine, as I said, a mini Google, except it was for um, fingerprints of music rather than websites. Um, and we had to build that from scratch, including both the architecture of, of the, the PC's um, as well as the, you know, the search algorithms as well. Um, so, and then we had to, you know, design the kind of end-to-end user experience um, and including integration with mobile operators. Back then there were no smartphones, um, so the service was uh, very different than it is today. You actually, uh, we had to integrate with an interactive voice response system, IVR, and with SMS systems from, with carriers. And um, so users would dial a four-digit phone number, um, place a voice call, where we would capture the sound of the music and then we'd terminate the call um, with our interactive voice response system and send an SMS to the phone with the name of the song.
0: Are you an entrepreneur looking to buy a profitable online business or a founder ready to sell? Bupos is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses. With their exclusive listings, as well as listings from other marketplaces and the option to submit your own deal for approval, Bupos has you covered. Plus, they're the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers of recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding without personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash BUPOS. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to start your entrepreneurial journey or sell your business at the right valuation with BUPOS.com. So looking back at those early days, what do you think was one of the biggest mistakes that you made?
1: Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, ultimately, uh, probably as a very green entrepreneur, um, I probably didn't have enough understanding of how important it was to get to revenues as early as possible. Um, And, um, of course, you know, we, we absolutely plan to build revenues um and um we did so you know, by launching a service um but we later um we later as a company we recognized there was an opportunity to um bring in revenues uh, in a slightly easier form than than consumer you know that doesn't require consumer adoption um and that was to kind of go after some sort of b2b applications with our with our business um licensing our technology for other uses um and that was a great thing to pursue, um, and it was successful for the business, and it, and it helped bring in um, money that to really co- cover the costs of operating the business. Um, but um, I think the mistake that, when I think back, probably one of the things that could, I could have done differently would be to pursue that at an earlier stage of the company. Uh, because I think that earlier that you can start bringing in revenues to sort of help fund your company – um the better off you're gonna be because you really need those revenues. The essentially you want you want revenues to be your source of funding rather than funding itself as soon as you can. Um much as Google did, right? By licensing its technology to Yahoo, um that it could start to use revenues as a for, as a source of funding rather than venture capitalists.
0: do, do you remember how quickly you went through the seven and a half million dollars of funding that you had?
1: Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I would say, you know, sort of probably wasn't that much more than twelve months uh, because we had a pretty significant business to build.
0: All right, so you, you've got the investors. You've started to build out the the technology, the team, and the product. How did you? Uh, what did you do for marketing? How did you get the word out about the product?
1: Yeah, we hired um, a marketing director to run our um, or VP of marketing, as you could call it. Um, that to run our marketing um, for Shazam, he we hired someone very experienced in the music industry. We were we were a UK-based company in London, um, and this guy um, had run marketing for the largest uh, group of radio stations in the UK. Um, and it was a sort of a nimble, uh, fast-moving, fast-thinking, um, sort of uh, entrepreneurial, uh, smart guy that was a great fit with our company. Um, and so, yeah, his job was to kind of think through all, all the different ways that we can uh, take a very limited marketing budget and use it to. To kind of ignite the 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 fire of uh, of, of the service, and, and hopefully, kind of start to acquire users, and, and ideally get those users to spread the word. He tried all kinds of different things, um, ranging from um, you name it: banner ads on websites, radio ads, small late night TV ads, um, SMS messages, email messages. You know, just all all different types of things. Even even people going into bars to tell consumers about it. Um, and, um, yeah, but the reality is that I think, you know, it was an uphill battle because back then, again, there were no smartphones. So you're, it was a, you're really having to change consumer behavior in a way that it's hard to contemplate uh, today in the world of smartphones. Um, people understand the idea of mobile apps now and just downloading them and using them back then, but Shazam was not a mobile app and there were no mobile apps. So you're basically trying to train people uh, to take on this completely new behavior of dialing a phone number um And then being charged because we had to have a business model um being charged fifty pence per use to identify a song um and um so I think the combination of that creating that trying to drive users to acquire that new behavior and the fact that we had to have some business model since you couldn't even sell digital music back then um and therefore we had to charge i think those those things create made it a real uphill battle to get um significant number of users. Um, which now today Shazam enjoys, uh, thanks to the the sort of advent of the smartphone.
0: At what point did you feel like the business was starting to get some meaningful traction?
1: Uh, it, well, the the first stage of meaningful traction was in kind of a couple years into Shazam, or a couple years, I should say, after launch, um, with uh, the first wave of mobile applications. Um, so before. Uh, what, what is now known as sort of Android and iPhone and iOS and all these smartphones. There was a kind of earlier stage um, uh, of phones that uh, were, you know, more advanced than SMS in terms of their interactivity, um, but they had Java applications um, and they were hard to distribute to phones. But you could sort of find ways to preload them on phones, um, and so we actually had a pretty successful model preloading these Java apps onto AT and T phones in the United States, and, um, and we actually drove a pretty significant. Um, revenue stream from from people basically paying monthly uh, subscription to use Shazam on their AT and T Java phones. Um, that was the first wave of kind of there was that there was sort of a glimmer of hope of a real business, and if we, especially if we could spread that around many more carriers around the world. But of course, the real hockey stick occurred when the Iowa, iPhone App Store launched in two thousand eight. And, uh, that's when, um, Shazam just instantly rose to the top of the charts and to always sort of ro- resting in the top sort of 50 to a hundred apps, um, and remaining there. Uh, and, and it was like, that's when the users, um, that Shazam had was growing at an astronomical rate.
0: If, if the app store, um, hadn't launched at that time, do you think your growth w- would have been a lot slower?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, with that, this is an example of how it can be sort of these externalities that your whole business uh, relies on. Um, and in fact, many of great businesses have relied on externalities. Um, in the case of YouTube, it was the advent of flash video. Um, and, uh, without flash video, it was hard to have a, a sort of frictionless experience of watching videos on the web. Um, so you know there's many businesses that had some kind of technological advent sort of uh, technological innovation that kind of opened up the door for um the incredible uh, uh opportunities for those companies to realize um and uh and um yeah, Shazam was was absolutely reliant on the on the app stores essentially to get to its growth and if they hadn't happened to date Shazam would still be uh, you know it would no be nowhere near 100 million monthly active users um it would be probably you know some, still kind of below 1 million monthly active users.
0: Now, in 2004, you decided to step down as CEO and you, you hired a replacement. What was the reason for that?
1: Yeah, so I actually stepped down from, um, from the CEO role before 2004. So um, we, 2004 is when I moved over to um, to Google. Um, but um, But I hired in a CEO to replace me earlier than that. I hired in a CEO... Um, to replace me after I was, had been CEO of the company for about, um, about two years, about a year prior to venture funding and a a year post venture funding. Um, and one of the things that we agreed with our venture capitalists when we, when we raised our venture funding, um, we actually wrote even wrote it into the term sheet as was that, uh, we were going to hire a, an experienced and gray haired CEO to run the company. <laughs> um, and that's the way things were done back then. Uh, it's a, it's a different world today. Um, and, um, and you know, the, you know, if anything, venture capitalists really encourage founders to, uh, remain as CEOs. Um, but back then I, I, I joked that the venture capital handbook, uh, said exactly the opposite. It said, you can't trust this, you know, 20 something uh, entrepreneur to, uh, it's a run a business, um, just because he has a, a good idea. Um, and, uh, and, and that mentality I think was, um, even more rigorous, um, rigorously believed, uh, in, in the Europe where we were. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's, I, I was fine with that. Uh, I, I really just wanted to build a successful business. Um, of course I wanted a great CEO. Um, but, uh, yeah, we went out and we actually interviewed a lot of candidates and we found a, a fantastic CEO named Jerry Roost, um, who had been running, who had previously run CompuServe Europe and, um, he stepped in and, uh, to, to run, run Shazam. And I kind of remained on board as a, as a really business development focused, uh, role.
0: And then, uh, what, so that was when in 2002 or
1: three? Uh, I would say, yeah, about, it was probably around 2000. Oh gosh. Yeah. I'm trying to remember all the dates now. Yeah, kind of around two, around 2002, around that time.
0: And, and then, why why did you decide to leave and then move on to Google?
1: Um, yeah, so uh, actually, of, of the four co-founders, all of them left at uh, different times, um, but all kind of within a 12 months of that time, I would say. Um, and um, we, we, the company was really struggling at that time. Um, so, Shaz- as I said, you know, Shazam didn't really hit its hockey stick until 2008. Um, and we started the company in 2000. I left in sort of late, late 2003, even to join Google in in 2000, early 2004. Um, and, um, yeah, I think we just sort of, you know, felt like the the company was running lean. It didn't didn't have, um, the meteoric growth that we had hoped for. Um, it had, we had hired in sort of season management to, to really kind of lead the, the, lead the company. We had fully vested our shares. I'd been there for four years altogether at Shazam. Um, and, um, Google was kind of like a hot opportunity and I thought well why not jump on board at Google and kind of I still have to get to keep my shares and Shazam and to keep my um keep my more importantly for me because it's such a great passion for me stay involved in the company at the board level which I continue to do today.
0: And so do you still have equity in the company? Yes. And so okay so and and so now your 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 involvement is is limited to being a board member. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. Um, so Chris, it's now time for our lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I'd like you to answer them as quickly as possible. Are you ready? Yep. All right. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received?
1: I'd say it's, uh, it's, it's, but some, some venture capitalists, as I was raising money, would ask me how I can come back to them having eliminated certain risks that they were concerned about. And I started to really realize that it's eliminating risks. The more that you can eliminate risks one by one um, prior to raising your money, um, the more effective you're, you're going to be at, uh, at attracting capital so that you can actually build a successful business.
0: What book would you recommend to our audience and why?
1: Well, there's a really old book that uh, um, I, ho- I hope is still in print, but I read a- and I found really inspiring called Burn Rate, um, a story about a, a guy who built a startup that was eventually sold to AOL and all the kind of crazy times that he went through in that process. And I found that it was a real roller coaster ride of uh, excitement.
0: What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur?
1: I think that one characteristic that you're not going to be able to survive without is just incredible persistence uh, because uh, there is nothing that's easy in entrepreneurship. And so, uh, yeah, that's sort of a fundamental requirement, just ridiculous amounts of persistence.
0: What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit?
1: I love, uh, this wasn't around when I was doing Shazam, but today I, I couldn't live without it. It's a piece of software for the Mac computer called Things. Things and it's a it's a productivity kind of software ge- based on the getting things done concept, but very usable and easy. Um, and I just I live by it day to day.
0: Do they do they have an iCloud sync feature for that now? I remember looking at that a couple of years ago, and that was one of the things that was putting me off at the time.
1: They don't use iCloud as their sync, but they have their own sync. Um, and, uh, and so this, it does sync well, unfortunately it doesn't sync across platforms. So it's only on Mac and iPhone, iOS, um, not on Android or PC. Um, but if you, but if you're willing to live with that, um, you do have sync, which, which is great.
0: If you had to start a new business tomorrow, what type of, uh, product or market or opportunity would you go after?
1: I believe that there's a huge opportunity coming up in the next decade in healthcare um, and healthcare related technologies, um, and I'm, um, so I think the opportunity is is absolutely massive. Um, and then I think that it's an industry that's so archaic and out- outdated that it's ripe for innovation to really be uh, come in and disrupt things. Um, and finally, it has a sort of mission driven quality to it that I find very attractive. So I, I'd say health technology.
0: What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know?
1: Well, uh, so I, in, I because i have an English father and spent quite a few years in England, um, I really love something that they eat in England called Marmite uh, that some people, <laughs> some listeners might have heard of. Um, I like this thing called Marmite. And in England, you eat Marmite on a piece of toast typically. Yep. Um, but then again, I've also grown up uh, in California where, as you know, a very common food in California is the Mexican burrito. And so I actually combined those two concepts uh, and created the Marmite burrito. Uh, And the Marmite burrito is sort of Mexican-British, and it's basically Marmite and a little bit of butter on a tortilla and rolled up. It's delicious.
0: (laughs) Only in England would people eat stuff like that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. And and finally, uh, what is one of your most important passions outside of your work?
1: I would say, um, uh, travel and as I, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, particularly if there's an element of sort of surfing or adventure in it. Um, I love, I love sort of adventurous travel is probably one of the highlights of, uh, life experience.
0: Great. Now, you know, you joined Google back in, uh, 2004. Um, and then, I mean, that was in the early days of Google um, relatively early days. And, um, and then you joined, uh, Dropbox, uh, a few years ago. Um, have you ever thought about going back and and starting another, another business yourself?
1: I've thought about it definitely. And I've, I've, uh, um, I, I still think that I might do it at some point. And um, one, one kind of, Uh, channel for me now is I I am involved in a couple startups uh, on the side. It's hard. It's a stretch, of course, because I'm um, at Dropbox full time. I'm on the board of Shazam and I'm I'm helping uh, one or two startups, uh, two startups actually. Um, But um, yeah, I I can see, I can see starting another company one day, uh, but it's not, not immediately.
0: Cool. Chris, I want to thank you for joining me today and, and sharing your experiences and insights with our audience. And and thank you for letting us get to know you a little better personally as well. Um, now, if folks want to uh, get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Probably my my Twitter account, which is Barton uh, Surfer, B-A-R-T-O-N-S-U-R-F-E-R, Barton Surfer at Twitter.
0: Great. And uh, if they want to check out Shazam, you can, folks can go to Shazam.com or... Uh, just go to the app store if you haven't tried it out. Chris, thanks again. And I wish you uh, continued success in the future.
1: Thank you so much. All right.
0: Take care. Are you still wrestling with rigid spreadsheets that slow down your team? you've been missing. That's the sastoolkit.com.